So as we said, Martin's going to be continuing on um, in our um, studies from Isaiah. So today's reading, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let's just pray for Martin as he comes to speak. Lord, we know this passage well. We use it a lot at Easter. And so, Lord, we just pray that as Martin comes to speak on it now, Lord, would you just open up something new to us? Help us to understand the sacrifice that you made for each one of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. That's great. There are echoes of Isaiah all the way through uh, Mark's gospel in particular. Um, So when Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was speaking of himself as the fulfillment of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Um, John Stott wrote this about Isaiah chapter 53. I quote, every verse in the chapter except verse two is applied to Jesus in the New Testament, some verses several times. Indeed, there is good evidence that Jesus' whole career from his baptism through his ministry, sufferings and death to his resurrection and ascension is seen as the fulfillment of the pattern foretold in Isaiah 53. We need to remember, of course, that Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before the birth of Christ. Um, He was prophesying to Israel. Israel was and is a privileged and holy nation. Israel was called to be a light to the other nations. They were called to be a holy people, which meant keeping God's laws. And by keeping God's laws, they were to shine brightly with the beauty and holiness of God. And like a moth is drawn to a flame, the idea was that other nations would be drawn in to worship Yahweh, Israel's God, as they saw the beauty and holiness of them keeping the commands. But we all know, of course, that Israel time and again um, strayed from God's laws. And rather than being a light, they rebelled and just sort of looked like all the nations surrounding them. They did evil in the, the eyes of the Lord. They worshipped idols. They didn't keep God's law. 
And God warned them back in Deuteronomy that if they didn't keep his law and persisted in disobeying him, that they would be cursed and sent into exile. And of course, we know that in the time of Isaiah, that many of the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, had been carted off into exile in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from the temple in Jerusalem. And after 70 years of exile, Jeremiah had prophesied that the exile would come to an end. But the people were crying out. People like Daniel were crying out in prayer for God to restore his people back home. And eventually, after 70 years, Cyrus the Persian allowed, through conquering Babylon, allowed the people of Judah to go back home. They had been far off from home. They had been far away from God, away from his presence in the temple, hundreds of miles away in exile. And they needed somebody to, or something, to bring them home. They needed somebody to pay for their sin, to restore them and bring them home from exile. And so Israel being away from home in exile is a picture of all of us in our human sin. We are all born into the world far away from home. None of us come into the world loving God as we should. We are all in exile. We are all um, far away from home, which is why there's an ache in the soul of people. People ache and long for more than this life can give them. And that's because we were made to know God. We were made to live at home with God as our loving Father and Creator. And until we come home to God, we're like wandering sheep who feel they're away from home. And Isaiah's prophecy is all about wandering sheep and how we can come home out of exile through Jesus, who is the means by which people can come home. Um, so I want to look at two things, two ways that we can come home through Jesus. First, we, come, we can come home to God by hearing and accepting the message of Jesus. Um, we stick that first. Thank you. Um, the world looks for leaders who have military might, political influence, numerical superiority. Uh, Putin would be an example of this, wouldn't he? Power, might. But how does Jesus come into the world? Well, we have it here in Isaiah's prophecy. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, that's Jesus, before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Worldly leaders like Putin seem to hold all the power and the influence, and they're able to deceive people for a time at least. But the truth will out. The only one who is truly sovereign and ruling over the nations is this tender shoot. This one who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him in appearance, in a secular worldly way, there was nothing about him that would attract us to him. And yet he's the one who holds the world in his hands. We used to sing, didn't we? He's got the whole world in his hands. It's true. God does things differently to the world, doesn't he? 
And the servant is first described as the arm of the Lord. Now, Isaiah doesn't mean that Jesus is one of God's arms in a physical sense, as if God's the body and the head and Jesus is the arms. Um, you'll know that uh, God is spirit. And you'll know, I'm sure, that in scripture, arm means the power of God to do that which human beings cannot do. We sometimes sin, we sometimes sing, sorry, not sin. Well, we do sometimes sin, but we sing more often with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, don't we? Speaking about the mighty arm of God to bring his people Israel out of Egypt. Do you remember the arm of God um, symbolized by the outstretched arm of Moses over the Red Sea? as God's power parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go through on dry land while the Egyptians were drowned uh, behind them. So that's God's mighty arm doing powerful things that we cannot do. And Jesus is the mighty and powerful arm of God. He's the only one that can save us. He's the only one who can bring us into eternal life and bring us back home to God. So he is the mighty arm of God. And yet he appears into the world, not as a mighty striding figure of power and influence, but like a vulnerable and tiny shoot, a root out of dry ground. Doesn't sound very impressive, does it? Well, was the baby Jesus very impressive as he lay there in the animal feeding trough in swaddling clothes? There was no room for him at the inn, was there? There he was, surrounded by uh, animals. And there was God, the Son of God, lying in an animal feeding trough. He was born into the world, not in powerful pomp and circumstance. He was like a tiny shoot or root out of dry ground. There was nothing about Jesus that would draw us to him in a human, secular, worldly way, was there? Nothing. He was so unimpressive when he entered the world, and he was rejected by many. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Paul quotes in Romans 10, 16, he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. Paul used this prophecy to say that we're in the world today, we are so much like Israel. We reject the message too. We reject the good news of God. Um, we're still caught by surprise when not everyone accepts the good news about Jesus, aren't we? Um, you know, we're still caught out by that. We expect everybody to sort of receive uh, the good news with glad hearts, but not everybody does. Some people are outright hostile to Jesus and to the cross. They find it an offence that they should need to be saved from their sin. You know, no, thank you very much. I'll live my life my way, thank you. I don't need anybody telling me how to live. I'll do things my way. And so Isaiah is pressing on us the need for revelation from God. There is nothing in Jesus that is humanly, worldly, 
um, desirable. The only way people can come to know Jesus is by divine revelation, supernatural revelation, right? God has to open the eyes of people. Um, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. That's what Paul says, isn't it? You know, I mean, who, you wouldn't make this up, would you? I wouldn't make this up, right? How's God going to save the world and bring people home to him? He's going to send his son to die in agony and brutality and humiliation on a cross for our sin. That wouldn't have been the way that I did it. What about you? No way. The only way that people will accept Jesus is if God opens their hearts, their eyes, their ears to see and understand and receive him, which is why you and I need to pray for friends, work colleagues, neighbors, family members who don't yet know Christ. Because we need to pray that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. We can't convince them and argue them into the kingdom, can we? You know that. <laughs> You've been in those arguments and discussions. The only way that people can know Jesus is if the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, ears, and hearts. It's through prayer, isn't it? We have to open our mouth and share but only the Holy Spirit can give that understanding to people and help them to accept Christ. Um, there will be those who hear the message and believe. Romans 10, 17, this is what Paul says. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ, right? We have to keep sharing this gospel message as often as we can, because there will be people who by the Holy Spirit, by revelation, will receive and accept Christ. So every Sunday, you will hear me preaching Christ. Doesn't matter where we are in the Bible, Leviticus, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Revelation, one of the Gospels, you will always hear Christ from this pulpit. Why? Because faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. That's how God works. And all the scriptures point to Jesus anyway. If you keep driving uh, long enough, you'll come to the coast in this country, right? If you just keep going, and you don't hit a dead end, you'll hit the coast. Well, if you keep reading long enough in the Bible, you'll come to Jesus, right? You can't avoid it. Everything points to him in scripture. So we should always preach Christ. And we try to do that in all of our groups. We try to do that in our youth group. Monday night emerge, we preach Christ, we share Christ. We share Christ in the seniors group on a Saturday morning. Everything we do as a church is about sharing the message of Jesus. Otherwise, what are we doing? What's the point? We want people to come to know Jesus. The only way people can come to know Jesus is if they hear the message. And they can only hear the message if we share it and speak it, right? Um, that's why I love Alpha. Alpha is all about Jesus. It's all about sharing, speaking about Jesus. So we will always, as a church, preach Christ. Always. Second, we can come home to God because Jesus is punished in our place. The whole emphasis in verses four to eight is on the suffering of Jesus for our healing, 
our healing socially, physically, spiritually, emotionally. He suffers not because of anything he has done wrong, but because of everything that we've done wrong. Um, sin is not a popular idea these days. The idea that we have sin that needs to be forgiven and paid for is not a concept that people really like to talk about these days. Um, I came across this advert. I don't, know if, I don't know if you can see that, but it, no, you probably can't, but it's an advert for tomato sauce, Heinz. Other tomato sauces are available, I'm told, but this is Heinz and it says no sin. And the reason there's no sin apparently is there's no added sugar in it. Right? So when you eat this uh, no added sugar Heinz tomato sauce, you are not sinning, apparently, according to the advert. So that's the level of seriousness that our world takes towards sin, right? Sin is about not breaking a diet, not eating too much chocolate, right? That's, that's what, the, or not eating a full tub of Hagen dazs right? That's sin, okay? That's the level. And yet, when we look at the mess that our world is in, who can deny our guilt and our sin? Um, I'm not going to show you this article today because it's it's, I haven't got time. But there's a, a wonderful article in a, a journal called The Hedgehog Review that talks about the strange persistence of guilt in our world. Guilt has not gone away. It's just expressed differently. People scapegoat one another these days. Have you noticed this? Anger on social media. Echo chambers of anger. People have got nowhere to put their anger and guilt, so they just lash out against people that they disagree with. So the person over there who disagrees with me is the one who's in the wrong. So I'm going to put my guilt, my anger, onto them and tell them that they're wrong in no uncertain terms. The world has nowhere to place guilt, no mechanism for dealing with sin. And yet we're expressing it through angry, opinionated comments on social media where we lash out against other people. We've nowhere to place our sin, no way of dealing with it. And the problem is that the world is supposed to have got to be a better place. The secularists have been telling us for decades that with the you know, scientific and technological advance, we're supposed to be maturing as a human race, aren't we? Uh, hello? Something's going wrong. Something's going wrong with the world. You don't have to be brain of Britain to work this out, do you? You don't have to be on University Challenge to see that there is deforestation, loss of species, injustice, war. All of our technological and scientific advance is not leading to great progress in the project of humanity and secularism. It's just leading to a dysfunctional, broken world where people are turning their back on God and finding that actually life isn't liberated and free and happy without God. It's worse. The Bible uses the picture of wandering sheep, doesn't it? I found this. Uh, I hope you can see that. Now that that's a bad place to be. I don't know how that sheep got there, but I'm assuming that it's going to have trouble getting out of that mess, right? 
But this is a picture of all of us. We're like sheep who've gone astray. We're lost. We can't find our way back home. We're stranded. So many people in our world are lonely. They're lost. They're unhappy. They're anxious. They're fearful. They're depressed. They're despondent. They're lacking meaning, lacking purpose. They're like that sheep, lost, hopeless. Um, in the ancient Near East, of course, if you were a wandering sheep, you were putting yourself in real danger because there were wild animals that might just attack you. And with the heat in the middle of the day, you might just die of thirst, dehydration, if you got wandered off from the pack. And this is a picture from Isaiah of all of us. If we wander off from God our Father, who's our creator, we will miss out on eternal life, which means joy and contentment and peace and fullness of life now, and it means missing out on eternity after this life. You were made, I was made by God for eternal life. God wanted you and me to come home and know him as the, as the shepherd, guiding us, giving us good pasture, leading us beside still waters. He wants you and me to have a happy, fulfilled, contented, joyful life, right? But he didn't want it to end with death. He gave his own son, Jesus, who rose from the grave so that you and I can trust in him and receive life beyond the grave. That's what the good shepherd does. Now, if that isn't good news, I don't know what is, right? Hello? Thank you. Jesus came into the world, the good shepherd entered into the world for lost sheep like you and me to bring us home, right? People who are socially isolated, people who are suffering physically, people who are isolated from God can be brought home. Verse 4 says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Jesus was afflicted and smitten in our place. And he was smitten and afflicted so that he understands and empathizes with us in our weakness and struggles, right? We don't have a God who stays far off from our sufferings. We have a God who enters into our sufferings in Jesus. He understands because he's walked this earth. He's been tempted as you are yet was without sin. He's been abandoned, forsaken. He's been smitten. He's suffered emotionally, physically, spiritually. So he understands you when you pray and cry out to him, right? Matthew saw in the healing, of ministry, in the healing ministry of Jesus a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. This is what we read in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 to 17. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was, what, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. There is healing in the death of Jesus. There is healing emotionally, physically, spiritually, socially, in the death of Jesus. Jesus was wounded so that by his wounds we might be healed. 
Lonely people might be brought home. Afflicted people might know that God loves them and cares for them. Physically ill people might be healed. Now, of course, the fullness of the kingdom will only come in a new heaven and a new earth. Um, unfortunately, you may well be healed physically, but your body will still decay. I'm not here to bring you bad news. I'm just telling you the truth. All right. You will die. Lazarus still died, right? Even though he's raised from the tomb. The kingdom has come, but it is not yet here in its fullness. When Jesus returns, this will be fully um, ours, won't it? In a new heaven and a new earth, we will receive bodies, resurrection bodies that won't age or decay or get sick. But they'll live forever. Um, until you get out of this body, you will suffer some of the effects of the fall. But one day you will be liberated from this body. Isn't that wonderful? So there is healing in the atonement. But it's now, but not yet fully, right? It's obvious, isn't it? The body of Jesus was pierced and crushed to deal with God's judge, just, just judgment on our sin. Verse 5. By He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Peace with God is not lying by a stream chewing um, dandelions. It is knowing God as friend and having satisfaction and peace and joy in his presence, right? The dividing wall of hostility is broken down through the cross. We know God. We're friends with him. We have peace with him. Jesus was cut off on the cross so that we will never be cut off by, the, by God. Isn't that wonderful? Um, some, some people today are outraged at the thought of God the Father punishing his innocent son. Um, Steve Chalk, in a book, The Lost Message of Jesus, says this, that God punishing his son is tantamount to cosmic child abuse. Wrong. Wrong. Why is Steve Chalk wrong? He's wrong because God in Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ is not a separate third party from the Father, right? We believe in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus suffers, the Father suffers. Steve, you're wrong. God the Father suffered with the Son and with the Holy Spirit as Jesus hung there on the cross. The Father felt the pain. Of, of, of having to reject his own son, of the forsakenness and darkness of our sin that fell on his own son. The father, who'd been with the son for eternity, felt the separation of that relationship. So that's my rant for the morning over. Thank you. <laughs> you see, Jesus came into the world to deal with the effect of our wandering off from God. Verse 6 says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, his, of us all. Here's a picture of the scapegoat. Um, anybody heard of the phrase scapegoat? Right? This is where it comes from. It comes from Leviticus 16 in the Bible, in case you were interested. So on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the priest would lay his hands 
on the head of a goat and he would call down on the goat all the, all the curses and the sins of the people of Israel were called down upon the head of the goat. The goat was then sent off into the wilderness and that was a symbol that all of the sin of Israel was being placed on this scapegoat and the scapegoat was being sent off into exile away from the people. In other words, the scapegoat dealt with the sins of the people and the goat had to be sent far away. In other words, there had to be a scapegoat. Either the people died in the presence of a holy God or the scapegoat had to be sent away and that would die in the desert eventually. But some penalty had to be paid. You cannot be in the presence of a holy God and live. That's what God said to Moses. This isn't popular today, but I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to preach the word, right? Don't care about being popular. I want to preach Christ. So the scapegoat took the sin away from us. And that's what Jesus did. All our sin was laid on him at the cross. And he was sent away outside the city wall of Jerusalem and he was crucified and he died in exile outside the city wall. He was our scapegoat. And he was also our perfect Passover lamb. This is the next um, picture. Remember in Exodus 12 to 14, God instructed the Israelites to paint their door frames with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. And when the angel of death flew over the homes of the Israelites, he would see the blood painted on with hyssop and pass over. His judgment was not meted out on, on his people. And the Israelites were able to escape because the blood of the goat represented the life given up, sacrificed in their place instead of them. And this is what Jesus has done. He is the scapegoat for us. He's also the perfect Passover lamb. God places all of our sin on Jesus and sends him away to be crucified. But also Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb whose blood covers and deals with our sin. Um, verse 8. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her, shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That's the good news. Your sin, your guilt, your shame has been placed on Jesus. And it's been taken far away. So that you can come home to God. You can know this God this morning who loves you and who calls you to come home to him and know him because your sin was placed on Jesus at the cross. So when you look at that cross at the front of the church lit up here, that tells you that God loves you and God took your sin and laid it on his son so that you might come home and be forgiven for eternity. That's the gospel. Simple. It's common today for people to complain that if there is a God, he cannot be loving because why would he allow such suffering and pain? Why would a God remain so far off and remote from the world? Why would he allow such wars and terrible disaster to take place? But then we want to ask, but what if Christ, what if God in Christ has not remained far away and remote from the world? I'm going to read a little excerpt from a play. Um, a little play called The Long Silence. Bear with me. 
I quote, at the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young woman. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death, she said. In another group, a boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sun and eyes shouted out, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to remain in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because they had suffered the most. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was all rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew, they said. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think of him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence in Christ. You see, Jesus has suffered on the cross. He has absorbed, just as Mark's illustration showed with the candle absorbing all the oxygen. Jesus has absorbed all the brokenness, all the violence, all the injustice, all the pain, all the sorrow of this world. You see, the cross is the turning point of history. The cross is the sign that God has not forsaken this hurting world, but he's entered into it. And one day he will transform it completely in a new heaven and a new earth. You see, Jesus was forsaken on the cross as he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you and I will never be forsaken. Our brothers and sisters in Ukraine will never be forsaken because Christ was forsaken in their place on the cross. Nothing in all creation can separate us or Christians in Ukraine or anywhere, anywhere else from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. The cross is the sign and symbol that if God is for us, who can be against us? That the powers of death and hell have not won. But the resurrection tells us that even death has been overcome. The cross is God's ultimate demonstration of love. 
The cross is the sign that one day all creation will be healed. The cross is the sign that you and I one day will come home fully into a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more suffering, no more injustice, no more BBC One News, hallelujah. No more tears, no more coronavirus. The cross is the beginning of the end for this groaning, broken creation. And it's the sign that there is a plan. And that plan is that Christ will return and he will liberate this groaning creation for eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't understand the pain and suffering of this world, but we do understand that Jesus suffered injustice and death and evil, that all of the brokenness of this world was absorbed in his body on the tree. Father, in a mysterious, incredible way, all three members of the Trinity suffered in Christ on the cross. Lord, you love us so much that you were willing to give up the best thing you had in your own son. And there's nothing in all creation can separate us, Father, from your love. Lord, I pray today for my brothers and sisters around the world who suffer so much that you would remind them, Jesus, that the cross is the turning point, that you are coming again, Jesus, that death has not won, that Christ in his resurrection has the victory. And Lord, may we live lives of hope filled with your spirit, holding on to the truth and hope that you are coming in Jesus' name. Amen.